You're listening to the Solution Focus Podcast, the official podcast of the UK Association for Solution Focus Practice. And I'm your host, Alan Parry. So welcome to the first episode of the second series of the Solution Focus podcast. Now, before we begin, I just want to give a quick apology because at the end of the last series, my best hope was that I would be doing some kind of snippet episodes where we take the best bits from the interviews from the last series. Unfortunately, I underestimated the amount of time that would take in terms of listening through and editing and and creating those shows. So apologies for that. I decided instead to kind of carry on and just create some more interviews instead. So in this episode, I'll be talking to Elliot Connie. Now, Elliot is a renowned solution-focused teacher and practitioner based in the USA. And Elliot's also the author of a number of books, including Solution Building in Couples Therapy. Now, in this episode, we talk about how to apply solution-focused therapy to couples and relationship work. And Elliot shares some of his thoughts about the solution-focused process itself. It's a fascinating interview. So let's listen to Elliot Connie. Hello, Elliot. Welcome to the show. Thanks very much for coming on. Thanks for having me. So could you start off by just introducing yourself a little bit and tell people what, what it is that you do? Uh, my name is Elliot Connie, and I am based in the U.S., and I am a solution-focused brief therapist. I primarily work with couples and uh, families and teenagers and um, basically anybody, actually. And these days, I spend more of my time traveling around the world delivering lectures. Yeah, you're, you're kind of world famous within the community, aren't you, Elliot, really? And, and we'll talk about that at the end so people know exactly where to find you and, 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 and see all the stuff that you do. All right, yes, lovely. So how did you actually get into couples counselling, um, like couples therapy? Was this something that you longed to do for quite a while? No, actually, it was um, the probably the number one thing that I did not want to do. Um <laughs> When I started my field. So when I got into this field, I had a job working at an agency that was primarily focused on children and families. Yeah. And I loved it. I mean, I just loved it. And, and what I've come to learn about myself is I just love working with people. But because my introduction was uh, working with children and families, I was actually, um, um, when, I, when I started opening my own practice, I just assumed that that would be the focus of my work because I loved it and I had experience doing it and all of that. I couldn't stand the idea of working with, with couples. <laughs> uh, and number one, because my, the relationship that I saw as a child via my parents was not in any way a great uh, example of couples relating. And number two, uh, couples therapy is very, very hard. And I knew that from the get-go. So it was just like there is no possible way I want to be doing this work. Um, but what changed all of that for me is I opened my private practice, and uh, gosh, we're going back to like 2007, 2008, somewhere in there. And for whatever reason, um, couples were coming into my office, and I remember being really intimidated by it and really nervous by it. I, I was uh, anxious about doing that type of work, and and uh, I didn't feel like I had a lot of experience doing that type of work. And I went and saw 
a close friend and mentor of mine at the time, a woman by the name of Linda Metcalf. And I just thought, like, I'm getting all of these couples. What on earth am I supposed to do? Uh, I don't even want couples. So how do I handle this? And she said, um, you're going to have to figure out how to get good with it if you expect to have your office work. And she said, remember the solution-focused approach. Um, it's not really one that you have to worry about what client shows up. And that changed my perspective for me. And shortly thereafter, I just fell in love with working with couples and, and um, wasn't intimidated by it anymore. In a weird way, and this is going to sound strange, but I started realizing that as a couples therapist using the solution-focused approach, I actually had the greatest advantage ever from going into couples, couples therapy. And that is I'm looking at the couple through a different lens, which allowed me to talk to them differently and to hear them differently. So instead of hearing couples' arguments, I heard couples trying. Yeah. Instead of hearing couples' problems, I heard couples' love stories. And to this day, I consider myself the luckiest person in the world because I've heard love, more love stories than anybody uh, in the world. <laughs> so what are the relationships like when they first walk into your office then? Um, I think, what a relationship, that's a great question. Um, I think the best way I can handle that is relationships when they first walk into my office are uh, just like anybody else's relationship and they're not that dissimilar from the way they are when they walk out of my office. I would just say, I think they walk out of my office with a reminder of who they really are and how they really feel. I think that would be the biggest difference. So when you start a first session, Elliot, how does it begin when you're working with a couple as distinct from, say, working with an individual? I think it's the same as when I work with an individual. I first want to find out what the couple's desired outcome is for the work. And um, that's what I would do with an individual, and that's what I would do with a couple. But you have to be mindful of something. When you're working with a couple, you're going to get two responses to that question. And I think the biggest difference between working with an individual and with a couple is I have to take the two responses and uh, incorporate them into one mutually beneficial desired outcome. And how, how do you actually do that? So what happens, for instance, so you have one partner says something, another partner says something, there might be some overlap, there might even be some, some conflict in their best hopes. What, what, right. what kind of skill do you use in terms of, and, and what negotiation with the couple as well in terms of bringing that to one mutually beneficial outcome? I think the biggest thing, um, the biggest thing is to remember the difference between a goal and an outcome. So what I mean by that is I might ask a couple, what is your desired outcome? Like, and I'll, I'll use an example from a couple I saw last night, and they walked in incredibly contentious. The husband actually overtly said, I don't want to be here. I've never been in therapy, and I hate talking about feelings. So this is going to be a horrible hour. <laughs> and I said, what are your best hopes from our talking? And the woman said, uh, we need to work on our ability to resolve conflict. And the husband said, I don't know. I just told you I don't want to be here. So when I said, um, but since you are here and I'm going to try really hard, what do, you, what, do you, what do you hope to gain? And after a series of I don't knows, he eventually said, for her to just understand. So if you, if you just think about those two answers, yeah. one person says, uh, to, for us to work on 
resolving conflict and him saying for her to understand in my previous world as a psychotherapist, it sounds a whole lot like he's blaming her or her inability to understand on their argument or arguments, plural. And she is blaming or assuming that they don't have the ability to conflict resolve. But as a solution-focused therapist, and really keeping in my mind the difference between an outcome and a goal, I'm going to ask a, another question to go to a level deeper. And I'm going to say something like, and if we achieve those ends, what do you hope would be different? And then something beautiful happens. So if I say to the woman, and let's say, after we're done talking, you feel like that you and your spouse have the ability to conflict resolve, what differences would you notice? And she said, well, we wouldn't be arguing more. What would you be doing instead? We'd be getting along better. Great. And then I say to him, and let's suppose uh, through our talking, she somehow gains the type of understanding that you're hoping she would have. What difference do you imagine that would make for you? And he said, we wouldn't be arguing anymore. And I said, what difference would that make? He said, we'd be getting along better. So by going a step beyond the, the best hopes response and getting a desired outcome, you almost always arrive at either an identical desired outcome response or at least a desired outcome response that can be mutually tied together. Yeah, I love that. So, so basically just by taking their initial statements and asking solution-focused questions like what would you want instead and how would you know you were there, what difference would it make, you notice that you end up at a place where both partners are, are actually saying much the same thing. Right, right. Or, or they're saying things because she could have said we'd be getting along better and he could have said we'd be happy. Now, those are, those are not the exact same thing, obviously, yeah. but they're, they're close enough, or at least they're things that the other person may mutually agree upon enough that I can say, because it's all about the preferred future question, right? Because I can say, suppose you woke up tomorrow and there was happiness and the ability to get along present in your relationship, because I can tie them together in my preferred future question. Yeah, so so that's that's really useful actually in terms of those of us who might be interested in couples in terms of ensuring that everyone's on the same page at the beginning. And I'm, I'm right. curious though because I've I've read some of your stuff, Elliot, and I know there's a role in what you do for something that you call honeymoon talk. Where does that happen in yeah. the session, and and what what is honeymoon talk, and why do you do so, it? So, so honeymoon talk. Um, it's when I ask couples about the onset of their relationship and it's usually going to be me asking, how did the two of you meet and how did you decide to create a relationship once you met? And the reason that I do it is because number one, it's helpful for me to get resources as to, to understand and get language for the resources as a couple, as opposed to the two individuals and it also reminds all of us that there is still good present in the relationship. And uh, like uh, I keep picking on the couple from last night, when I asked them how they met, they talked about, you know, meeting at this bar and hanging out and becoming friends first and, and how they decided to go from friends. Because if you ask people how they met, 99 times out of 100 you're going to get a nondescriptive where answer. Just and, and I just mean in life, right? Like if I introduced you to a friend of mine and you just happen to say, hey, where'd you and your wife meet? They're usually going to give you a where response. They're going to say yeah. something like, 
we met at work or in college or, you know what I mean, at university, something like that. But the way that we do it in solution-focused brief therapy is I want to hear the details of the interactions that led to you creating a relationship because it's going to give me language and inform my questions in the preferred future description part of the session in a way that the that it's very important that I understand what were you guys doing when it was working. And every single couple, no matter how problematic their relationship is at the time of our meeting them, every single couple had a time in their life when it was working better. Yeah. So is that something that happens at the very beginning, even before the best hopes section, would you say? No. No. Uh, I usually will do it immediately after the best hopes section. Oh, okay. So you're asking them what their best hopes are, and then you'll move into this kind of, you know, how did you meet kind of thing and focusing on the interactions that led them to create that relationship. Absolutely, yes. Does that change the interactions between them or even the energy in the room at that point between the between the people uh usually it does in fact i would say almost always it does but to be honest with you that's just a wonderful byproduct of my necessity for needing language so some people have watched me do this type of therapy and they've said oh it's so good that like you're you're tra- you're changing them bef- like you're doing it for the purposes of changing the environment in the room but I'm actually just solely interested in language. Like, for example, are you married? Can I ask you that? I actually don't uh, know the answer to that. No, I don't. No, I'm not actually, no. Okay. If um, So let's say you came to therapy with your best friend. Yeah. Because uh, it doesn't really matter the nature of the relationship. You and your best friend had a real bad falling out. You both want to, to figure out this falling out, and you came to therapy I don't know anything about you or your best friend, and I don't know anything about that relationship, so I don't really have language to be as skilled of a question asker as I would like to be. But if I ask you a question like, how did you guys become best friends? Yeah. I mean, I'm sure there were, there were lots of people around at the time of your childhood when you met or whatever, but how did it become best friends? And you're going to tell me a story like, oh, this one day I was, I was outside playing, and I saw him, and, and we just started hanging out, and before I knew it, we were just hanging out every day. And I'm going to say, when did you notice that like this hanging out every day was different than the way you hung out with other friends? And it's going to inform my abilities to ask you questions throughout the session. But a wonderful side benefit, a wonderful kind of secondary benefit, is it also usually changes the environment in the room, even though that is not related to the purpose of why I do it. Yeah, and I love that question that you just asked about when did you notice that you were hanging out in a in a way that would lead you to becoming partners or best friends or whatever. Yeah, lo- lovely question. Right, right. And that's the thing with solution-focused, isn't it? I mean, it does have these lovely knock-on effects, which are not maybe what you're going for directly, but indirectly it does tend to happen. Right, I refer to those as ripples. <laughs> uh, because you can't, you can't stop your question from rippling. Yeah. So... Um, even though my purpose is very singular, I'm just hoping to inform my ability to ask questions throughout the session because I need that skill if I intend to be a helpful therapist. So even though that is my goal, um, just like with sound, you can't stop sound from shockwaving. I can't stop questions from rippling. Yeah. So you've, you've asked the best hopes, first of all, and then you've gone into this honeymoon talk where you're finding some some instances really of when the relationship was working well and Mm -hmm. 
what happens after that? Do you have a miracle question in in uh, in couples work? Not, I don't have a. Funny you ask that. I, I don't have a miracle question necessarily. So I'm not. There is no like miracle question form format. But what I am thinking is, I want to ask a preferred future question that may or may not include the word miracle, and may even may or may not include the activity of sleep. But I'm going to ask something like, so I'll stick to the example of you and your best friend. I'm going to say something like, let's suppose at some point after this conversation, it just happens again, where you feel connected in a unique way to this person. Even if you can't explain why, it just kind of happens. What's the first thing you would notice that would let you know the unique bond the two of you share has returned in its strength? Okay. And that's that is in essence a miracle question. Yeah. But the difference is instead of it being prescriptive, I use the information that I had uh, from a linguistic standpoint to build that question. Yeah. And in terms of in terms of the answers that you get back, then I'm, I'm curious when you're working with more than one person. How do you do the whole traffic management thing? I mean, this is quite a practical question, I suppose, rather than something right, to do right, with right. The, the, the model. But are, are, you, right. are you asking one person and then the other? Are you kind of taking turns, you know, where, where you're going to and fro? How does that work? Yes, no, you're very much taking turns. You know, we refer to the solution folks approach as a turn-taking process, as a co-constructing process. So when there's two people in the room... I have to be very aware of that turn-taking process. I have to be very aware of the management of that process because if, I, if I'm not, then what happens is one person will take all the turns. One person will start doing all the talking, and that, that is actually my job to manage that appropriately. Yeah. So you would maybe ask, ask that question of partner one, then you'd ask a question once you've got an initial answer to partner two, and then you'd come back to partner one and say what else, and then come back to partner two and say what else. Is that kind of how it's working? Absolutely, absolutely. If I ask one person a question, I have to remember to go back and ask the other person the exact same question to give them the mutuality of contribution. Right. You must maintain mutuality of contribution when you're doing this work with couples. How do you handle, Elliot, when, um, and maybe it doesn't when using this approach, but I always imagine that in, in relationship therapy, where people, people's relationships are working less well than they'd like, that kind of bickering and arguments and, and blame apportioning can sometimes break out. So the example that you gave a moment ago uh, with a recent couple, you were saying things like, you know, I, I, I want her to understand and that could have been a real cue for her to say, well, I do understand. You're, you're the one who doesn't understand. And, and a little argument right. could break out. How do you manage that? And, and to what extent does it happen? Um, well, so, number one, I'm, so I'm going to say two things about that because that's a really good question. So I think the first thing about that is when he said that, as a, as a solution-focused therapist, the questions that I'm not answering, I think, are why I'm less likely to experience those type of arguments. Because you're right. Him saying, I want her to understand, could trigger her to say, I do understand. You're the one who doesn't understand, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> but if I were to say something like, so can you tell me exactly what she doesn't understand? 
I'm just increasing the likelihood that yeah. she's going to respond in that way. And the funny thing about it is I would say something like, so what is it you think she doesn't understand? And then she gets mad. And in our field, like, I have the audacity to, of saying things like, um, um, man, that couple was a tough couple. That couple's an arguing couple. When actually, <laughs> I contributed to the argument just as much as they did. Yeah. Right? Like, um, but I think the second thing that we do in solution-focused brief therapy that continuously reduces the likelihood of those arguments is that turn-taking process. Because one of the reasons, one of the main reasons that people argue, it's not because they're mad and it's not because their relationship is in a difficult place or anything like that. It's because they don't want their partner to sway the therapist. So when they realize that I'm going to continue to come back to them and ask them the exact same question, they lose their need to interrupt their partner because they end up trusting me that I'm going to come back and give them an opportunity to answer the exact same question. Right. So when they go into therapy, your experience is that they will come in with a kind of fear that you're going to be a referee that's going to be persuadable and that you're going to right. go on the side with the other person. And so the very way that you conduct the therapy using this turn-taking um, sort of mentality and approach means that that fear gets allayed very quickly. And so the arguments are Absolutely. less necessary. Absolutely, yes. And, and when an argument does actually break out, because I'm, I'm sure it must on, on the odd occasion, how do, you, how do you handle that? Because, again... As a one-to-one -one therapist, it's it's not something that really well that would really happen. I mean, them they they could take offence right. with what you've said as the therapist, but they're you know they're, there's no there's only one person, so there's no kind of arguing going on. How do you handle an outbreak right. of argument where it does occur? Um, it is my job to um, interrupt them, and if an argument does break out. I have to resume management of the turn-taking process. However it happens, I have to interrupt the argument. And sometimes it's hard, and sometimes it's tricky, but it is always my job. Yeah. I'm curious what that looks like, you know, as, a, as an example. So two people, uh, a, a kind of argument begins to explode. What would it look like, the kind of intervention you would make where you retake the management of the, of the process? So, for example, if, if, if he had said last night, uh, I want her to understand, and she had said, I do understand. You're the one who doesn't understand. I have to say, one second, please, and then allow him to finish his turn. Because when I say I have to manage the turn-taking process, I mean I have to be aware of whose turn is it to talk, and I have to advocate for that person to complete their turn, and then I have to go to the other person and initiate their turn to talk. So what makes arguments so difficult is one person is trying to take the other person's turn, and I have to interrupt that. So if she says, I do understand, you're the one who doesn't understand, she has just taken his turn. And I have to say, ma'am, I know you're upset, but one second, please. And I have to get his whole answer. I have to ask my next question. And then I'll go back to the, to the in this case, the, the wife and say, and now what is your response? But that's how we have to do it. it and it, sometimes it's hard, but you have to be willing to do that. So at this point then, the, the couple have come in, you've established their best hopes, 
so you know what direction of travel that they want to be going in you've dug into that so they've you've kind of um you you've incorporated their responses into something that is mutually agreeable you've then gone into the honeymoon talk in order to find you know what was happening when this relationship was working well and now you've gone into the kind of preferred future so in terms of the preferred future you know suppose this this connection was as strong as it was how would you notice what kind of questions are you asking during this preferred future stage once they give their initial answer in order to kind of dig deeper into that um really um this may sound like a strange answer but i'm really asking one type of question just in many iterations Mm. excuse me and that question is what else so I'm going to say, suppose you woke up tomorrow or suppose sometime after the session, uh, what would you guys notice to let you know your relationship was um, happy or whatever, you know, whatever their desired outcome is? And then for the rest of the session, I'm going to ask, and what else would you notice? And what would you notice next? And who would notice? And where would you be when you notice? And how would that show up? And how would you show your partner? And, you know, I, I'm, it's, it's different ways of getting details and impact. Yeah. I'm I'm curious as well, Elliot, because I know when I'm asking just on one-to-one therapy that, you know, the preferred future question, and I'm asking versions of what else, I'll often ask, you know, what what would your partner notice if they have a partner? And I'm wondering what Mm -hmm. the impact that is of a partner listening to their partner talking about, you know, what their partner would notice. That sounds very convoluted. But if... if, if, If Bob and Jean were in the therapy room to, to kind of name these people, uh, give them theoretical names, wh- if yeah. you ask Bob what would Jean notice, I'm curious what the impact is on Jean for her to listen to Bob talk about, you know, what her interactions might be and how that would impact Bob. How does that then have a knock-on effect for Jean as a listener and as an onlooker to hear Bob talk about his interactions in a preferred future with Gene and what that would mean for him? I think it's significant. I think um, the impact, I think the impact is quite significant actually, because one of the things that we don't do very well as human beings is we don't get angry with people who are currently expressing positive thoughts and feelings about us. Mm. So if you're sitting in the room, if Bob and Gene are sitting in the room and I say to Bob, uh, what would you notice and about yourself on a day when things are going well? And Bob says, um, I would be really happy and I, w- I would want to hug my wife. Yeah. It is very easy for her to come along that journey. Yeah. Because we do that really, really well. It's And people always say, like, you know, do you ever experience arguments? The deeper I get into the session, meaning the longer in terms of minutes I get into the session – the less likely I am to experience some sort of an argument because the more and more positive details have come out. And we are, we are not really the type of – human beings are not really the type of communicators that don't share in a current experience. So if he is saying positive things about Gene and about his vision of Gene, about the way he would notice Gene, the way he would interact with Gene, she is much more likely to say the same thing about him. Yeah, that makes an awful lot of sense, doesn't it? That idea that as you, as you get deeper into it, you're getting deeper into the kind of preferred future. There's less space in in there, isn't there, for an argument to even right. occur? 
Right, right. Yeah. And to be clear, it's very, very rare that I experience an, an argument at all in my sessions. Wow. And it's not because I'm like some sort of great therapist or anything like that. I just think in the same way that it's really easy to have an argument if I say something like, so what is it you think she doesn't understand and why doesn't she understand it? I've just dumped negativity into the environment. It's very hard to have an argument if you dump positivity into it. Yes. <laughs> so once you're satisfied that, that you've exhausted the kind of preferred future and gone into granular detail there, where do you go next in the session, Elliot? Uh, that's usually it for me, actually. I usually will do preferred future description for the rest of the talking. Okay. And then I'll say something like, um, um, you know, I guess we're all out of time. And um, do you think another conversation would be useful? And what do they normally say at that point? Do they normally do you normally take it away and think about it? Do they do they say, yeah, another conversation would be useful? What's the typical response? The typical response is yes. Because um, usually I'll ask that, like last night with the first session, and they'll say, yes, we'll schedule another appointment for two or three weeks out into the future. Yeah. And uh, sometimes they call me and they say, we don't think we need this appointment because things have been well. Or sometimes they'll come back for that second session. Uh, and it's usually, usually that's about it, uh, those one or two sessions will be it. Occasionally there's a third, but that's usually about it. Okay, so when you're working with couples, you're, you're dealing with, on average, two sessions with the couple. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes three. Mm, yes. That's remarkably quick, isn't it, Elliot? You know, when I, when I think about um, people I know do couple work, it, it tends to last a lot longer than that. Yeah, I think... I, I I think it is quick, but I think it's congruent to the type of work that we do as solution focused therapists. Yeah. I think I think problem analysis and problem pattern interruption uh are lengthy processes. They're effective. Like I wouldn't I wouldn't want anybody to listen to our talk and think that like I don't that I would say problem analysis and, and you know problem focused therapy is not effective and thus should not be done. I I wouldn't say that. But I would say Problem analysis, problem understanding, interrupting problem patterns. I mean, those things take time, whereas I think solution building does not. So in terms of a second session, let's say a couple says, yeah, we'd like to see you in a couple of weeks' time, and then they, they return. How do you approach the second session? Uh, I usually will start the second session by saying, what's better? Okay. And what I like about that question is there's no wrong answer. <laughs> so if the couple says things are better, I'm going to say, when did you notice things were getting better? What did you notice your partner doing? What did you notice you doing? Um, how long did the better last? I'm going to ask all kinds of, of questions exploring the details of the better. If they say things stayed the same, I'm going to say, how did you keep things from getting worse? What role did you guys play of things staying the same? As things were staying the same, what did you notice that you were pleased with that you hope continues to be present? And if they say things are getting worse, I'm going to say, uh, and what did you guys do to stop things from backsliding even further? I'm going to say, um, um, how did you notice or what did you notice as things were getting worse that you were still somehow pleased with? What are you most proud about yourself as you went through a week where things got worse? 
How did you hold on to enough hope to come back to therapy and give it another go? So you can always ask solution-focused questions once you ask what's better, regardless of how the client responds. Yeah, and these these are great questions, aren't they? I mean, for any kind of any kind of work, whether it's with couples or not. I mean, I'm I'm grinning there as you're right. saying these because immediately I'm thinking, yeah, these are questions that I I I'm, I'm hearing would be very useful in in any of the kind of work that I'm doing too. Absolutely, and I think I think one of the things that people misunderstand about solution focused is there is a wrong answer, and I think the first thing that I, people need to understand. Uh, and I, and in, in some ways, I struggle with the word curiosity, because I, I don't know that I would ask my questions from a perspective of curiosity, hmm. because I could, I, I'm just not interested. There is no wrong answer. Yeah. So people will often say to me, "So Elliot, if you ask what's better, what if the client says nothing?" Well, the implication in, in that question is that if they say nothing's better, that they've now given me the wrong answer, and that's not true. Hmm. That's not true. Every question I ask, there is no wrong answer to it because the purpose of me asking the question is so I can hear another answer, so I can ask another question. Yeah, I think that's really valuable in itself. And I know we're talking about couples, but I think what you just said there in terms of what happens when a client says, well, nothing's better. In fact, it's worse. And how right. how we can play a role at digging into the good stuff anyway, I think is is valuable no matter what kind of work we're doing. Absolutely. I think that's absolutely correct. And it's, it's, we just have to remember, and these, this is like a fundamental thing that in my opinion, we don't often give enough uh, attention to, but we have to ask the question with the understanding that there is no wrong answer. It's simply my job to use the answer, not to judge the value of the answer. Yeah, I think that's valuable. Thanks, thanks so much for that, Elliot. It, that was that that alone has uh, has really got me thinking and 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 looking back on on some sessions and looking forward to future ones. And I think this conversation is going to mean that future conversations that I have are going to be better just from that little bit alone. So thank you very much. Awesome. No, you're welcome. Thank you. I'm I'm curious about um, the fact that the session ends um, after the preferred future is kind of well it's it's unusual isn't it in terms of say one-to-one work because i know that what would often happen in one-to-one work is that we'd then get into scaling to find out where they were up to at that particular point and then we'd find out how they got to that particular point and to dig into some resources there and i noticed that that aspect of a of a one-to-one session isn't present in your first session and and ex- not explicitly present in the second either. What's the thinking behind, you know, deciding not to use the scaling scaling question and everything that comes after that? Right. So, um, and I don't really ask the scaling question a whole lot, even in my individual sessions. To be to be very honest. Okay. Um, and I mean, so I work with the guys in London a lot at Brief. Yeah. And. Um, one of the things that we've had conversations about over the years is the idea that the presence of things like a task and stuff like that mm-hmm. don't increase outcomes. So if I'm not going to give a task, then I've probably just reduced my need to ask a scale. And if the preferred future description is you know, detailed and specific and impactful enough, 
then that's often enough to manage change. Mm. Uh, like the couple I saw last night, as they did, the, like they overtly out loud said, I know what I think we should do. And then he turned to her and said, I'm going to do this. And she said, I'm going to do that. Um, and it, it, it's a, me like I just need to get out of the way and just let them be them. Yeah. So is even in your one-to-one work, because I'm, I'm curious about how you're working as well there, Elliot. So that, that sort of idea where you might say to them, you know, if things were a little bit better than they are at the moment, how would you know? Is that something right. that, would, that would crop up in your work a lot? Not really, no. No, because I've, I've already, in, in a weird way, that would be redundant because I've already had such a detailed preferred future description. Um, I don't know that I would ask that particular question. Okay, well, that's really interesting. So in terms of your work, whether it be, so I thought that was, I'm glad I asked that because I thought maybe that was, um, you know, couple specific. But in terms of your way of thinking about the solution-focused method, what you're interested in is best hopes and a very, very, very exhaustive description of the preferred future. And then the session ends and then we go into what's better from the second session onwards. Right. Yes, absolutely. 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 And, and one of the reasons why I developed that habit was I absolutely noticed in the beginning of my career using solution focus with couples, um, oftentimes couples wouldn't remember what they were supposed to be doing. And then in some cases, and this impacted me quite a bit, actually, in some cases, the couple would argue with each other about the session. So uh, they'd come back for a session and I'd say, so what's been better? And they'd say, nothing. Uh, He didn't remember what he was supposed to do this past (laughs) week. I did my part of the homework and he didn't do his. And then he would say, I did what I was supposed to do you did and they spent time during the week arguing over what each other heard and it really made me realize that no two people are ever in the same conversation like we hear different things in 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 even though it's one conversation like two people might take different things people listening to our chat here may say you know i took this from what what they were talking about another person will say i took that from what they were talking about and i realized that if if the idea of giving a task doesn't increase outcomes and does increase the opportunity for them to argue, then I don't want to. I don't want to do that. Yeah, that's an interesting point, isn't it? I mean, I, I never give a task, but I'll, I'll ask them what a little bit better. I'll ask the person what a little bit better would look like. But it's interesting what you say that if you've got two people in the room and then they each describe what a little bit better would look like. There is right. kind of an implicit task that they've given themselves, and then if people don't do it, it is a source of potential argument, isn't it? I suppose is what you're saying. Right. Yes, and I, and I don't mind asking. Like I don't do it often, but I certainly wouldn't wouldn't disagree with someone who asks a question like, uh, "What would a little bit better look like?" I think the only thing I would say about that, the temptation with a scale, is helping the couple move up the scale. Mm. And I, I, I would really want to stay away from that. I, I, I think couples and clients should have free choice. And that includes the opportunity and choice to stay the same or even get worse. And what I've noticed about people is when they have free choice, when they have autonomy and true empowerment, they tend to make better and righter decisions. But I wouldn't want to be influencing those decisions by trying to help the couple move up the scale per se. 
Okay, that's that's an interesting philosophical point there. Do you mind if I explore that a little bit? <clears throat> no, no, please, go ahead. Yeah, it's interesting. So essentially what you're saying there is that when as therapists we ask them, you know, what would it look like if things got better? We're asking them, you know, what would it look like if they were a little bit higher up the scale? Your kind right. of view on that is that philosophically um, we're kind of almost getting in the way there because we're, we're, we're almost driving them forward. Correct. Correct. Because what I, my work is so based on the desired outcome response, I've already, by that time in the session, I've already spent a significant amount of time saying, what would it look like on the day your, your desired outcome became your reality? Yeah. And so from that point on, the way you're looking at this is it's, it's not our job as therapists to start cajoling the client up the scale to get a little bit better. Correct. It's the client's job to decide where they wish to go, given that they already know the direction of travel of, in terms of what it would look like when they got there. And it's up to them to decide Absolutely. at what pace to move. Absolutely. And when they do that, I'm, I'm always so blown away at how often they actually choose to move up the scale. And one of the reasons why this is so important, and I'm probably about to say something um, at least mildly controversial, Ooh. But I, <laughs> but I really do believe, I really do believe that not every couple is meant to stay together. Mm. And I really do believe it's none of my business, and I have no way of knowing which couples are meant to stay together and which ones are not. So yeah. I wouldn't want to force the couple up the scale if the if what they're ultimately going to decide is best for them to for them not to be together. Because I really don't believe every – my job is not to save the relationship. Mm. My job is to help them articulate their desired outcome and describe their preferred future and then get out of their way. And one of the best sessions I ever – or one of the best outcomes I ever had, and I remember this to this day, because I'll be honest with you. When I got into the field, I, got a, I, I probably had the intention of like I'm going to save every relationship. <laughs> but one of the most impactful things that happened to me is I saw a, a couple – uh, early on in my career, so what do you best know from our talking? There were significant problems going on. They told me what their desired outcome was, and we did a preferred future description. And um, they came back for the second session, and they said what they liked most about the first session was I was the first marriage therapist they had seen, and they had seen a few marriage therapists. They said I was the first one who wasn't trying to make them stay together. And I was, I remember thinking. Um, yeah, I'm just asking you questions and, and you answer them and then you make decisions based upon those answers. And I'm not trying to influence those decisions. About two years later, that couple contacted me. They had divorced, both had remarried, and they were bringing one of their children to me uh, for therapy. And they came to therapy with the new partner. So I did a therapy session with stepmom, stepdad, biological mom, mom and biological dad wow. and uh, the, the, the child, they were there. And the two parents, the people I originally saw said, uh, it's the best, separating was the best thing they ever done. They realized they weren't right for each other. And I will never forget this. They said now, instead of having two unhappy parents, our children have four happy parents. Wow. And I'll, I never forgot that. God, that's very impactful actually, Elliot, isn't it? And I think it's a yeah, good yeah. It's a good point that you make there that the the outcome, especially with a couple, is 
you know, it is not necessarily that they stay together. Do you actually have people whose best hopes when they come in is that they've already decided that they want to part and they, they simply want to part well? Uh, absolutely. And again, my job is always the same to help them articulate their desired outcome, help them respond to preferred future, quite help them describe their preferred future, and then lastly, to get out of their way. So when people tell me they want to part or part well, that's just as moving to me as people who tell me they want to stay together and figure out how to do that well. My job has never changed. My job is the, about the desired outcome, the preferred future description, and uh, I'm not really impacted by anything in between. So what advice would you have for solution-focused people who don't currently work with couples but are kind of interested in it? What, what would you advise based on all of your experience to other people within the, the solution-focused community who would be interested in moving into this work too? I would say do it. Do it, but understand it's going to be hard. It's not always you know, warm and fuzzy, it's not always pretty, but it is by far the most rewarding thing. Uh, I mean, if I just thought about like the 10 most rewarding experiences I've had as a, as a solution-focused therapist, um, they're all probably related to couples and families. I'm curious what they might be. Could you give us a, a, a <laughs> smattering of what they are? Well, just like the one I just told, like imagine someone... Yeah who enters into therapy with their you know, spouse and things are really, really challenging. And two years later, how their lives must have gone for them to say, we gave our children four happy parents. Yeah. Like if you, to, to really, there's almost nothing you can give someone more impactful than an improved relationship with someone meaningful than their life. Whether that's with a child, best friend or a spouse, um, that is, it, you enrich someone's life so deeply through helping them have improved relationships with meaningful people around them. Yeah. And um, I mean, that's why I, I really think like I'm the luckiest therapist in the world. Cause that's what I get to do every day <laughs> is helping people's lives become more enriched through the relationships uh, closest to them. And it is, it is amazing, man. I mean, it is absolutely, absolutely amazing. Yeah. I love that. That's lovely. So, so what advice would you give like a similar question? What would, what advice would you give to people who are already practicing couples therapy but are not currently using the solution-focused approach? Um, again, I might say something controversial here. But after, after 10 years of doing this work, and again, I don't want anybody to listen to this chat and think, you know, Elliot doesn't like or doesn't respect problem-focused therapies or any of that stuff. But I will say this. I have no idea how I would work with couples from any other perspective other than solution focused because the work gets so much more challenging when you introduce the different perspectives associated with a problem. Because in the same way that I said, no two people in the same relationship or are in the same conversation. No two people have the same relationship with a problem. Uh, I remember seeing a couple once and I said, what do you best hope from our talking? And the husband said, I'm very upset because I found out that my wife was having an emotional affair with her ex-boyfriend from high school. So that is a, that's his perspective on the problem. Why are you in therapy? If I had asked, why are you in, in therapy? He would have said, because my wife went off and had an emotional affair with an ex from high school. Yeah. 
So when I turned to her and I said, what are your best hopes for talking? And she said, um, I only did that because he ignored me for 10 years. He doesn't hug me. He doesn't touch me romantically. Um, and he doesn't even talk to me. So eventually I needed to have some level of conversation. So what is her perspective of the problem? I felt neglected for whatever period of time. So you bypass all of that by simply sticking to what is it that the two of you want? And uh, I, I really, all of the other couples approaches, I just, I don't know how you go through that, how you muddle through that difficulty when you could just stick to the desired outcome and work towards building what the couple wants as opposed to uncovering different aspects of the problem. When in couples therapy, the problem is usually emotional, intense, and hurtful. Yeah, I think that's, it's, you know, I've, I've had such a good time talking to you, Elliot. It's been so thought-provoking, and I'm, I'm, I'm conscious of not taking up too much of your time. So I'm going to bring it to a close, but before I do, is there anything else that you'd like to add that has not been covered so far? No, no, thank you. I think this has been great, and I, I've really enjoyed your questions as well, so thank you. So where can people find you, Elliot? Because I know you're a, a teacher as well, and you're online, and you do all sorts of good stuff online. So for those who've heard this interview and want to find out more about you in particular, how do people do that? Uh, the best way to find me is go to elliotconnie.com. Uh, Elliot's spelled with two L's and two T's, by the way. Um, and you'll find uh, an opportunity to join my mailing list, I have loads of videos on my website, free things you can download. I really am passionate about making solution-focused brief therapy accessible and people be able to get access to resources that will improve their skills. Uh, I'm really, really passionate about helping people uh, become effective with this approach. So if you go to my website, you should find material that will help you. And if, and if you're interested in all of my other stuff, join my mailing list, and I'll keep you updated on all the things I have going on. So that's ElliotConnie.com, and it's Elliot with two L's, two T's, and Connie is double N-I-E. Yeah. Yeah. Yep, correct. Magic. Well, thanks again, Elliot. I really appreciate your time and all the, all the brain food that you've given me there. Plenty to, <laughs> to think about. And, uh, yeah, I hope to see you soon, maybe at the next conference. Awesome. Yeah, I hope to see you too next time I'm over there. All right. Take care, Elliot. Okay. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Solution Focus Podcast, the official podcast of the UK Association for Solution Focus Practice. To find out more about us, visit ukasfp.org. That's ukasfp.org. Now, our best hope is that you'll spread the word by sharing the podcast with your friends and on your social media. Even better would be to rate us on Apple Podcasts so it's easy for others to discover the show. And if you'd like to contact us or even be a guest on the show yourself, just write to podcast at ukasfp.org. That's podcast at ukasfp.org. Until next time, thanks for listening and goodbye.